Hey, everybody, and happy 4th of July to everyone listening in the U.S. I mean, I guess... Happy 4th of July, whoever you are, but it's a holiday here in the United States, and uh, what a time to reflect on the state of the country and our place in it. As questions swirl around recent Supreme Court decisions, the January 6th hearings, and public health developments, you might wonder what you could do to contribute to how things in this country run. That's why this week for Hot SciComm Summer, I'm excited to share my chat with Taylor Scott, She's an assistant research professor at Penn State University, where she has two roles that connect her very well to this podcast series. One, she's the director of research translation in the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. And two, she's the co-director of the Research to Policy Collaboration. Essentially, Taylor spends a lot of time figuring out how to help researchers get their findings out of their labs in a way that can inform actual public policy. A lot of the topics we'll cover this summer on the Science Communication series are about interfacing with media to get science out to curious members of the public, like podcasting, writing, video producing. But another really important form of science communication is more strategic, translating research so that it can make a difference. So I was excited to talk with Taylor about the strategies developed in concert with the Research to Policy Collaboration and the unique challenges of connecting academic scientists with folks in government. I, I'm curious about how you got wrapped up in this. Like, what what is your story <laughs> in terms of like your background and and why get into this position of thinking about translating research to policy? Um, yeah, well, I describe my career path as a little serendipitous because in grad school, I was drawn toward more macro level social problems. Even, I don't know, maybe rewind the clock a little bit to undergrad, I was convinced I'm going to be a clinical psychologist. I was dead set on it. And I took a community psychology class that helped me to think about the fact that problems are not merely individual, but they're also systemic. And so Bronfenbrenner levels of analysis, I thought, you know, okay, cool. I can do more community-based work and have a bigger impact than I would with just one person at a time. I did end up getting accepted into a clinical psych PhD program, but intentionally focused on community psych and eventually I ended up deciding I don't want to become a therapist. I didn't want to be licensed. And I really wanted to go all in on sort of more macro level problems. And I started to work on policy related things in a practicum as part of my coursework and quickly became um, a founding board member of the National Prevention Science Coalition, which really gave me sort of a good starting point in learning what role could we play as researchers in the policy space. And the serendipitous part is once you start to do policy work, people start to realize that you know things about policy. So they come and ask you to do more policy things. And so very early in my career, I became um, a leading voice in policy in my professional social circle. And, and, so once I started working with the National Prevention Science Coalition in a paid role, the goal there was, all right, well, we know that from what the literature says, a big, um, in 2014, Catherine Oliver, a colleague of ours, published a systematic review about how policymakers use research evidence. And the coalition I was working for said, oh my gosh, we need to do more relationships. Relationships between researchers and policymakers is what's missing in the world. Okay, how do you do that? <laughs> and so we started with this really abstract concept that we need better trusting working relationships between our, our two communities, but didn't really have a structure in place to, to do that. And as a community psychologist, I wanted to think about it in terms of mobilizing the scientific community as a whole, as opposed to having, you know, a handful of paid staff in the world who are science intermediaries, how can we really support community organizing of researchers themselves? And so that led to the Research to Policy Collaboration, <laughs> where I started working on that with Max Crowley, and then we started to evaluate it at Penn State. 
what what surprised you in those early days of sort of like making a transition yourself? Like, were there things about the policy world that you weren't expecting, uh, given the training that you had had before that? I think that a big thing people who don't have much policy experience expect is that it's going to be super high stakes and controversial because that's what the media makes you know, they highlight the controversy. That's their job to get viewers to pay attention to political issues. But I guess what's surprising for most people is that once you're actually involved in these meetings, they don't seem as high stakes as they as you might have initially thought of. You're oftentimes meeting with a staffer who's also early in their career, and you can have a relatively casual conversation about problems happening in the world. And, you know, if you build that relationship, you can get asked to do more important high stakes things, but you don't get asked to do those things before the relationship starts. So, so what are the, what are the kinds of ways in which research informs policy, right? Like in terms of thinking of that mm-hmm. expectations and, you know, you think there's going to be really high stakes, but like on the ground, like what is often happening when policymakers are interested in like, you know, what researchers have to say about this. There's a a well-known typology in my field of study of how policymakers use evidence, Um, well-known as air quotes there, I guess. But it's a typology that says that policymakers can use evidence in several different ways, including instrumental is using evidence in a really direct implications for policy development. Conceptual is a little more abstract about helping policymakers understand causes and consequences about particular social phenomenon. And then you have tactical use, which researchers abhor, is more political of like, oh, I already know what I want to do. Now I just need something that says I'm doing the right thing, like confirmation bias. No one likes to be involved in that political process. If you're a researcher and you you feel like try and true with the data, you're not wanting to cherry pick your evidence, right? And um, and so what we found in our studies is that conceptual use actually seems to be much more of a natural role for researchers in part because there's a saying in policymaking that there's no such thing as a new idea. And so these conversations are often not about telling policymakers some radically earth-shaking idea of, you never thought of that, did you? It's more so about talking through what it could actually look like on the ground or what the unintended consequences are about their policy ideas. And so that also fits really well with the researcher's typical preferences for their role because they just because of researchers preference to be more of a neutral source of information they're less apt to say hey policymakers this is what you should do about it and they also tend to have more uncertainty to say that's gonna work like here's the silver bullet to solve the world's problems because it's life is not that simple and so it's talking it's having a conversation about complex problems that you might chip away at in different ways which is a lot more conceptual than instrumental so one of the things i struggle with sometimes is thinking about like what actually so so these are sort of conceptually mechanisms through which research can inform policy but like what are the kinds of research findings that matter to policymakers right like maybe if you could give like an example or two of like here's a case where some researchers had some findings we connected them to policymakers who needed to know x y or z in order to you know draft some something like concretely what does this look like sure um I I like how you preface that because I'm going to flip it on its head. Instead of saying, I'm a researcher, I have cool findings, the way that we go about it was we start with the end user. What do they need to know? That's a best practice that we try to incorporate into all of our research translation work is by first understanding what are current goals, what's on the current policy agenda, and how can we involve the right researchers? Researchers have a hard time being at the right place at the right time in part because they don't have the time to review what is on the current policy agenda. And so then we go and look for researchers who have those corresponding interest areas. 
I think a, a, a good example of that has been the work that we really we did around child abuse prevention. Um, one of the people who I work closely with is Jenny Knoll in the P50 Center at Penn State for Child Maltreatment uh, Research Center. And so Jenny and I talked about how child maltreatment, um, specifically the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, known as CAPTA, was up for reauthorization. And so we started by having meetings with the committee staff who were in charge of drafting the reauthorization language to ask what their interests were, what their goals were, what were their concerns, what were the barriers that they were facing. And doing those listening sessions helped us to be a lot more in tune with what they really needed. And so um, the House was majority Democrat at the time, and we were asked to do more uh, synthesis of what costs were associated with child maltreatment versus the prevention programs. And that ultimately, the House invited us to do a testimony where those data were presented in, in the hopes that, you know, the House wanted to reauthorize a bill that would provide more funding for prevention specifically and allocate funding in that direction and their justification being, look, if you don't prevent child abuse, it costs more in social ills and other ways. Uh, And the Senate side, we had a corresponding relationship, but the House, the majority was Republican. So we worked with um, Senator Alexander staff at the time. And that uh, relationship Through that relationship, we were asked to look more specifically at things related to sex abuse in particular and look more closely at some of the the legislation that they were hoping to present. We do not lobby. We explicitly do not lobby. And so whenever people ask us about legislation, we have to be very careful that we are not um, making specific recommendations on how to change it, but can summarize almost like a policy analysis of this is what the policy is going to do. And this is what research has to say about it. It sounds like that example anyway, sounds like at least some of this is using research to argue for priorities, right? So like we should prioritize such and such initiatives, like because the data show that this is sort of like has a certain kind of impact. Is that kind of often how these take shape? Like we're, we're arguing for priorities. It, that that is a good example, um, but it really is dependent on the particular partnership where we're working. There have been offices that want to work with us on oversight. We've spent a lot of money on opioid crisis. How is that money being spent? Is it being spent in an evidence-based ways? Is it going to, you know, the people who are opportunistic trying to, you know, squeeze more money out of the government in ways that aren't effective? Um, we've been asked about human trafficking prevention as an example, and someone in the, um, human rights commission included some of the research that we provided in an international memo. It just can go in a lot of different directions. Another person asked us about missing and murdered indigenous women and their main barrier was getting it on the policy agenda for the committee. And so we engage researchers in writing an op-ed about it. That happened just before the pandemic, and then everything kind of switched focus entirely. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I ask because I get the sense that there's maybe like an abstract interest among researchers in contributing to policy. But at least I don't have a clear sense of like, what actually is the policy outcome that Mm -hmm. research could contribute to? Um, So so these are just helpful examples to even just get a sense of like, what what are the possibilities (laughs) of of uh, using this and and one of the things that strikes me is a lot of these interests are fairly specific, um, which is in contrast to at least like in my world of social psychology, we're often interested in understanding basic principles and sort of generalized understandings of like how people process certain kinds of information or engage in certain relationships. Um, and and I get the sense that policymakers, in the same way that you see this in other applied fields. Are like, yeah, but like specifically, what does this have to say about my problem? <laughs> um, so in your estimation, like how much of this is a translation process versus finding the actual evidence that is already specific to the issue of concern? So if I'm understanding your question, 
you're wondering if it's about translating existing evidence or finding evidence that whether or not that exists. Yeah, I guess I, I more mean like, you know, sometimes researchers are interested in general questions that you could argue have something to say about these specific policy needs. But ah, other researchers are very committed to like understanding this actual specific, like this population, this specific issue. Right. Uh, like how much are you drawing on people with specific expertise versus people oh, with general yes. expertise that could be Got translated? It. We certainly believe in team science in that, you know, a diversity of scientific opinions can really improve the overall uh, dialogue that's happening with the office. So we typically try to Im involve multiple researchers who have different uh, experiences. I think that one thing we've learned in practice is that the legislative staff are, are fairly generalists themselves. So sometimes they don't know how specific or broad their research questions are. Sometimes it's as broad as, how do you fix poverty? And you're like, wow, okay, how am I supposed to tackle that? It's really broad. Uh, and then sometimes they're so specific that they're, they're asking about anencephaly in indigenous communities. And there might be one researcher in the whole wide world that studies that. So um, we, are, we find our sort of happy medium by bringing in perspectives on various pieces of those puzzles as opposed to, you know, um, we, so I, I think that part of the work is translation even of what are the questions the policymakers have and how can we tie that into the research community? I tell my uh, employees that we're not just translating research for policymakers. We're also translating policy for researchers because we have to help researchers understand what are the programs and the kinds of questions and the agenda that policymakers have. Sometimes they're using entirely different language about pieces of legislation or policy programs that researchers have never heard of, even if they're studying the things that those uh, policies are designed to do. Yeah, so, so maybe we could take a step back and clarify a little more specifically, like what the research to policy collaboration is about. Uh, because we've sort of like hinted at it, but like if you were to give your pitch, like this is what we do and this is how it works, mm -hmm. what would you say? Yeah, uh, the research policy collaboration is a replicable model that organizations can use to facilitate partnerships between legislative offices and researchers. It helps to connect researchers with the right offices at the right time that are interested in the work that they want to do. And it's done in a way that most researchers find is consistent with their educational mission because we also provide a lot of technical support around how to avoid lobbying and to be an honest broker of, uh, of the evidence, providing different sorts of implications as opposed to sort of advocating for specific solutions, which legislators appreciate because number one, it's much more agenda neutral than anything that they're typically exposed to. And um, research from our academies and universities, we've found in our studies, legislators identify as being more credible than a lot of the research that's otherwise in the policy space from think tanks. Uh, and so, uh, like, how, like, actually, like, when you're connecting <laughs> these two different groups together, like, what what is that process like? Sure. We start by identifying policymakers' priorities through a needs assessment. Uh, we'll ask, what are your goals? And we'll try to identify ways that researchers might be involved. And then we go to researchers who we identify as part of a rapid response network. Researchers enroll in the network, which allows us to have the equivalent of a virtual Rolodex. That's really important because going to a complete stranger in the research world, they're like, who are you? Why are you contacting me? And it slows the process down by a whole month just to even demonstrate credibility with a researcher that we're a viable entity. And it also means that we're not having to go about searching every time we get a request across the internet of someone to find. We have researchers self-select into saying, I study these things. And so we can sort of sort through our catalog and identify researchers who might have a, a relevant areas of expertise and can either say, here's some relevant information or 
research articles and maybe another person you should talk to. And when we do that, we try to synthesize enough to help aid in responding to the legislative interests area. But also, it's an ongoing partnership development process where we try to help connect the researchers with the offices as a follow-up so that we have rapid response meetings where they meet and they talk about these issues and then try to strategize how to work together going forward so that ultimately you can end up with collaborations that lead to things like being asked to be speaking at a testimony or helping to provide model legislation, things that are a little more higher stakes than just the conversation. But the conversation itself is is an important foot in the door. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to get to like, you know, tips and tricks for actually <laughs> translating this into the language of policymakers. Uh, and to start, I, I think it's probably worth understanding like what the differences are between the priorities of policymakers and the priorities of researchers. Like these are two different cultures, two different mindsets that if you're right. not careful can come to a head <laughs> and nobody understands each other. So like w- what are the differences between like what you would say, like the priorities and goals and norms of researchers are compared to legislators? Great question. There's been a lot of work published on this because it's called parallel universes or two communities where that we're living by very different norms. And so on the research community, we have a pretty linear sequence of how we create a research question, we design rigorous methods, and we study it. And that process can take some time. And then when we write about it, it's typically going into peer-reviewed journals and maybe reports to our funders and things like that, conferences to our peers. It's often pretty insular focused. And I think that you know, the movement toward bringing some of our research into more of community and social impact work is sort of the wave that I want to ride is trying to help universities have stronger social impact. On the policymaker side, their roles are involving a lot of stakeholders where research is just one consideration Uh, Their number one consideration are the people who they represent. That is, by design, they are representing citizens in the United States in their districts. And so they care about what they have to think. The organizations or stakeholders otherwise who influence their, their constituents. And they care about um, anything that would impact them. So if research is going to be effective, it's often more effective when you can talk about it from the view of the constituency that the policymaker has. Whenever uh, policymakers are, policymakers' norms are often a lot more rapid fire than than researchers because the agenda moves really fast. Um, The policy window of opportunity is something that can really be a fleeting moment. That's how certain bills get passed very quickly. And if you're at the the table, then you may have input. And by and large, researchers are not in those conversations. And the normative thing is that policymakers listen to the people who are coming to them to weigh in on these issues. And so it is not normative for a policymaker to intentionally seek out someone because they have enough people knocking on their door asking to meet. And so without some kind of intermediary to try to help broker across these worlds, you have a lot of different interested parties that are going to be at the table. And as the trope says, if you're not at the table, you're on the table. And that means being on the chopping block. So that's why you know, the advocacy scene is so crowded is because a lot of uh, professional societies and industries recognize that if they're going to have an impact on policy, that they have to be involved. Hmm. You said that these can be pretty fleeting. Like, what does that mean? Like days, weeks, months? (laughs) How fleeting are we talking? (laughs) The policy process moves very fast. Um, I'll give you an example, drawing back from the example that I gave on CAPTA. Whenever we were asked to do the uh, testimony, we were asked, 
within a, two weeks, can you travel? Can you write an official statement and speak for three minutes on the Hill? Two weeks. That's all you had in order to have someone physically in D.C. with official record on Hmm. like for your testimony. And that's just part of the process. It moves very fast. And whenever bills are being marked up, sometimes they only have three days to mark them up. And so if you're not at the right place at the right time, then you don't have those opportunities to be involved. I get the impression from from work that you and your colleagues have written that policymakers really do value like an empirical input, right? Like when it's there, it's like it seems desirable. It seems like this is good. How well do you see policymakers at being able to interpret research findings? Like I, I, I'm again just trying to sort of unpack what the challenge, the communication challenge here is. Like biases. I don't want to say aptitude, but but I think you know what I mean. But like. Like, how able are policymakers to actually, like, quickly understand what it means that that researchers find X, Y, and Z? Well, we work mostly with staff, uh, and staff are not monolithic, like any committee is not monolithic. So your committee staff or your staffers who are working in roles where they've become kind of the go-to expert of their field— they may be pretty knowledgeable already Hmm. and want more of a nuanced conversation or maybe even just a partner in their work that they do. It may not be that they need some earth-shattering news about what causes human trafficking. It might be that they want someone who's going to help them provide the sorts of information that they can explain and express to their colleagues about what's going on. Um, to help them to continue to be the credible source that they aspire Hmm. to be. Um, I think that those really technical staffers um, are especially in committees or in specialized roles, like even caucus leaders can sometimes be very specialized and knowledgeable about the research in an area. Your average personal office staff is expected to handle somewhere between three and five different global policy issues like between immigration and child and like social services. So that's a lot of breadth for one person to manage. So they're not often as specialized and it can really just depend. I've had a conversation with a staffer before where they just wanted to understand what the process was like in how a parent's rights get terminated and how a child becomes eligible for adoption. And that wasn't a research conversation, but he trusted the researchers who were studying this process to help him understand bird's eye view of what was going on in the system. This is very helpful because it breaks my stereotypes, (laughs) which are that like, you know, there's sort of this like fast and loose like, ah, yeah, we got to get some science in here to, to back up what we're saying and sort of like, you know rife with possibilities of missing the gist or missing the impact or missing the nuance. But it does seem like it's like a legitimate interest in getting this information and like the an interest in getting the nuanced take on it. That is that that's what I'm hearing. Does that sound right? If I can, I'll address an elephant in the room and that is politics. Oh sure. Like there are certain things that research cannot change minds on. And it goes back to what is the representative's role? It is to serve the interests and the values and the beliefs of their constituents. And so certain moral opinions that research is not going to change the opinion of that. And certain politicized issues that have become really cemented in party platforms, those are really hard. (laughs) So finding ways to work with a policymaker means figuring out ways that they would find it to be politically feasible to work on those issue areas. The good news is that a lot of the most bipartisan issues that there is ability to make compromise on where research can make a difference is that the media is not covering them. So the people who are outside the policy arena see all the dysfunction and they're like, oh my gosh, science is, um, you know, there's a war on science. And I'm not going to say that there's not been an incredible um, movement to discredit science, especially in the pandemic. That's been very alarming for all of us. But there's a lot that can be done behind the scenes in ways that people don't realize. And I've had majority leaders recognize that 
that that's the case, even if their bosses are not saying it on screen. It it, it also speaks to me the to the uh, value of the research to policy collaborate, like the system that you guys have, which is, you know, like <laughs> researchers themselves probably are thinking either what I do is irrelevant to policy. I'm not seeing it anything like what I do covered on the news. Also, you know, if I did have anything to say, it would just be shot down because of politics. Whereas what you all are doing is going and identifying maybe some of those hidden needs for research inputs mm -hmm. and facilitating sure. those connections. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, how often do you hear about the news coverage of even opioid policy? They're talking about a lot of opioid deaths, but they're not talking about, you know, oh my gosh, some controversy in, in the, the act that's going to solve, you know, overdose and fent fentanyl. They're, that's not controversial enough. So, so if we sort of zoom forward to like, okay, researchers have something to say potentially about things that policymakers are wanting to get a move on. In the process of actually like synthesizing what the science has to say about it and conveying that in a palatable way, you know, to the science communication side, like, what does that look like? What are best practices in, in communicating the science to policy? One of the things that we do is we help write, we help researchers write fact sheets that we feel are close to what we can call best practice. I am really hypothetical like that because I am a researcher. <laughs> and a lot of um, science communication has not been rigorously studied. I I'll say that, you know, that's one of our team's unique niches is that not only are we doing the work, we are applying rigorous experimental methods to understand what is best practice. And so with the fact sheets, we typically recommend that they are under two pages. If it's one page, even better. Bullets make it super skimmable. Be as actionable as possible. But if you're if you're trying to avoid that lobbying rule, it needs to have um, more of like a menu of different options of ways that policymakers could use it. And instead of saying, you know, these are specific things that you should do, uh, specific policies or specific programs that you should change in a specific way, how can you dial that back and think about the core constructs of what um, what are what are the core things that are would make a difference in people's lives? It's not Medicaid necessarily. It's healthcare access. So if we're focusing on more of like, what is the it that, um, that would really make a difference as opposed to a specific policy program, then that's something that we find to be more consistent with our sort of nonpartisan value. Then um, one of the things that we do, and I think you're, this is the segue here, is that we do a lot of field testing of our fact sheets by disseminating them broadly across state and federal legislative offices and understanding if we write the message in a certain way, is it more likely to have broader reach? Can we increase uh, the number of opens and clicks that legislative staff and their officials are attending to the information we're sending them through this platform? And one of the best practices we've identified in this research is that consistent with this theory, I've told you, relationships matter. Being, you know, mobilizing the scientific community matters is that it was highly ineffective for us as an entity. The Research to Policy Collaboration has sent you this fact sheet. Oh, actually, we sent you a newsletter. We spent a lot of time making a beautiful newsletter that was HTML formatted and it flopped. It was really great that we did this testing because we saw that not a lot of people were using it. And so then we said, what would happen if we had a researcher who authored the fact sheet send the email directly? Not only did it get open and clicked more often, it facilitated more interactions with researchers themselves, which is the goal. So if we had Luke email his fact sheet, you might have a couple of legislators who say, Luke, I'd love to talk to you about this more. Do you have time? And then it would schedule from there. I think we had some other sorts of, even one person was asking about um, legis legislative review of, of bills that they were working on, presenting to their constituents, attending a hearing. There were a lot of things that came out of that that we didn't expect. Hmm. So, so making it more personal, person to person. 
Yes. I am a huge proponent of a written piece of research synthesis is not standalone. It needs to be accompanied by a very strategic dissemination plan. And that means people are involved. Maybe you're bringing that piece of two meetings with you and it's sort of something you can leave behind. Um, legislate before the pandemic, legislators were very old fashioned. I assume they still hold on to some of those norms is like the the paper trail is something that they value having a leave behind. Um, the The other thing that we've discovered is that if we can do it in this way, we may actually be able to have an impact by disseminating these fact sheets on how policymakers are using evidence. What I think was kind of interesting at the onset of this project is that our field in general has recognized just broad-based dissemination pushing research evidence to policymakers is largely ineffective. It's um, because it's not relational and it's not always timely or relevant. And so we tried to adapt a dissemination model that would address those issues. And what we found is that state legislators were actually using more evidence language in their social media posts during the pandemic when we were doing this. That was very cool. I w- as you were saying it, I was like, oh, that's right. That was a very cool way that you were able to like show, like how often can you do that right? to show that, <laughs> that this kind of communication isn't just like directly communicating information, but it's shaping a style of legislation, right? Or an approach to putting these things together, right? And so, so mm-hmm. like you're saying, like it, this was where you were able to track like uh, individuals who would have received the kinds of communications that you were sending went on in social media to use language that was more like research shows or data uh, suggests or, you know, according Mm -hmm. to recent studies. Um, And and not even necessarily the ones like, I guess maybe you don't know if they were referring to exactly the information you were sending, but but just Mm -hmm. sort of a general like shaping how the conversation plays out. Sure. Well, we don't know exactly how they were referencing it because that was kind of beyond the scope of the study. When you have such a large sample size, it's really hard to do in-depth coding. But using the linguistic markers that we used in the study, we did find that they were using more conceptual terms. So back to that typology I mentioned before, things like using the words risk factors or disparities, the conceptual language that came out of the fact sheets was more likely to be used by uh, 28% more posts contained those conceptual language. And 67 more posts were made whenever they uh, using data and analytics language. So that was more like indicating the level of rigor of studies, whether what kind of studies they were. Um, what I think is also important to note is that we found a actual a drop in use of language related to the production of science. Knowledge generation was our category. So things that were related to the the production of research, scientific generation, and dissemination, there was a lower uh, likelihood of legislators in that group uh, producing social media posts. We think it could be, are they calling for research evidence? Are they are they saying we need more evidence? Or maybe the availability of evidence in their inbox is making them less likely to call for more evidence. So, so is this all related to the the new scope thing is that that's what yes. this is? so so maybe let, let, let's uh, take a step back rewind again sorry like, yeah <laughs> uh, sure. like like what is this and i mm-hmm. get the sense that you're excited about it so what is exciting sure. about it mm-hmm. um so scope is the short name of we uh, the psychom optimizer for policy engagement it is the model that we're using to build onto relational approaches it's not standalone in that we want to make sure that it's embedded in these relational approaches that we find to be best practices, but there are multiple other types of models that we could be using that essentially create an end product out of a partnership, timely partnership, making the evidence relevant. When the evidence is timely and relevant coming out of those partnerships, it may have the potential to be more effective and be disseminated through um, scope. 
And Scope uses elements of continuous quality improvement, CQI, to do A-B testing, the field testing, like the newsletter example, so that we can better shape our strategies for improving whether or not legislators are finding that this is a useful and relevant uh, piece of information or a fact sheet. So it helps us to sort of study as we go how to improve the way that we communicate with policymakers. What I find more find exciting about it is that I, I just think that this is it's cutting edge way to use data in practice, which I'm just a super nerd about. I don't know. My whole graduate training was using program evaluation to inform change in action and in practice. And we're using a really embedded design, research design into our practice to help us refine and fine tune how we approach legislators and making a better use of everyone's time and making us more responsive to the legislature. Yeah, what I I like about it too is it it seems like it's less of a, oh, here are the handful of things that you ought to be doing to enhance your science communication. What it really is, is like a data-driven approach to effective science communication, right? It's not not like Mm -hmm. a list of bullet points that you say you have to do these things. It's more like, here is how we get better at doing these things. Of course, yeah. I like that. Um, So... I mean, in some ways, still, the challenge kind of that you alluded to is like convincing scientists to do this, <laughs> like to mm-hmm. take some of their time, right? Like if it's really a case of, hey, in two weeks, we have to get this stuff put together. Otherwise, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, like what are the challenges of getting researchers on board with this kind of work? The number one barrier for researchers to do policy work is time. They have a lot of pressures to publish, to meet departmental needs, to respond to emails from students, a whole myriad of other things, service and academic related. And so one thing I like to point out is that researchers and policymakers may live in different spheres in terms of certain norms, but they're also similar in more ways than you might realize because they're both really busy people who have their own types of technical expertise. And so trying to sort of match these communities up means trying to provide a lot of support, administrative support, to even help make those meetings and conversations possible. And I think that that's the real niche that the RPC has played is that we facilitate these partnerships and are successful in part because we try to take as much of the burden off of researchers as possible to being at the table and at the right time. Even whenever researchers are authoring fact sheets, oftentimes there's uh, we have a pretty robust training program because so many junior scholars in our academies are interested and curious. Like maybe the beginning of our question, conversation was, what is policy? How do I get involved? What does this mean? I'm just curious. And so they start working with us to get a little exposure to policy. So a lot of times our trainees are trained on the fact sheet process and can work with researchers on trying to get a synthesis into a fact sheet format so that it, all the work doesn't have to get shouldered by someone who's just doing this on the side in their their service time. I think that it's also important to point out that one of our frequently asked questions from legislators is, why are researchers doing this? Who's paying you? They <laughs> want to know kind of the special interest of like, why? And it's kind of a credibility thing that we can even say researchers aren't even getting paid for their time. They're they're just here because they want their work to matter and make a social impact. They want to make a difference. They want to help people. And so it kind of takes some of the, um, I don't know, it helps boost the credibility that policymakers and researchers are are on the same page about just trying to make a difference. Like that's why the legislative staff are there too. And that's why a lot of research is done is because it's trying to unearth problems in the world. What what's actually going on here. And so if you can um, help, help to build some credibility across those two worlds, then it's also another way that we're trying to sort of make this an easier process for researchers to not have to do all of the legwork just to even get a seat at the table. Is the hope that this is like a, 
I mean, you, you, you referred to it as a replicable model, right? Is the hope that this is something that it's not just like one team of people organizing <laughs> this for the entire country, but like as you're describing <laughs> it, I sort of imagine like large universities having an office like this, right? That works in partnership with maybe their state governments and identifying policy initiatives, looking to see whether their internal faculty are doing work that's relevant and doing some of this facilitating. I guess like what, what kinds of conversations are you all having in terms of like, you know, what, what is it scaling up <laughs> or, or growing sure. this and letting it sort of move beyond just your unit? I love your vision. <laughs> um, and we definitely see research centers as a partner in this work. How can we work with research centers across the country to to even meet the social um, service mission of the university? Universities have even been at kind of um, a crossroads, I think. Even politically, you see trust in universities has become more partisan, in part if the theory in my research world is true, it's because there's a disconnect between the research and academies being in an ivory tower and not having enough relationships with the people they were su supposed to be serving based on their land grant status. And so as universities begin to recognize there are ways that we can provide a service to, to our state and the policymakers, then hopefully we will find more opportunities there to work in partnership with research centers. Uh, currently, we do partner with several research centers, and that's been, you know, a promising area of growth for us. I think that, you know, most of our work has been done at the federal level, but we have done work at the state level in partnership with um, the Michael and Susan Dell Center for Healthy Living and University of Texas in Austin. And they were our first pilot of doing it, the uh, replicating the research policy collaboration in the state level. And now we're writing a grant to study basically the same um, outcome study that we did at the federal level by randomizing Congress. Can this work? Yes, it can. But can we do it at the state's? and randomizing 30 states as to whether or not they can make a difference in substance use prevention policy in particular is how we're thinking about it next. We've also thought about international work because we're just, you know, ambitious like that, I guess. So we've um, been having some conversations with um, people in different countries, including Australia Prime Minister Office, about how they might adapt components of the model because their governance structure is very different than ours. So it would require a lot of adaption because it's not as legislative focused as it is uh, administrative ex executive branch type focus policy. So so just by way of, of wrapping up, let's say someone listening to this is a researcher, him or herself, and they say, this sounds great. I, I would love to, to know that what I'm doing could potentially have this impact. What would you encourage individual researchers to do if they are hoping that they could sort of use what they're doing to have this bigger impact? Sure. Well, first, I would love to get contact information for anyone who wants to be involved so they can sign up on our website and we can make sure to call upon them if their, their research interests come up in some of the work that we're doing. Um, we try to minimize the irrelevant things in people's inbox and just call upon them when their time is right on a specific issue. The other thing is that it doesn't have to be, you know, the research to policy collaboration. I think the key thing for researchers is to find intermediaries that they can get involved with in general. I think that there are lots of great intermediaries. Some are nonpartisan. Some are very partisan. So you, in terms of someone's reputation, they want to consider who they're affiliating and associating with. And sometimes researchers don't care if they're perceived as partisan, and that's okay if you want to just understand what your role is in terms of, I have actually a different recorded video about, do you want to be raging against the machine like Bill Nye, or do you want to be who someone who would be otherwise behind the scenes but weren't for the pandemic, Anthony Fauci? You know, there's different roles that we can play as in science policy and trying to understand what hat you want to wear is an important question for the kind of relationships that somebody wants to build. Great. Uh, and if they want to know more about research to policy collaboration, where should people go? Our website is www.research2, 
policy.org. And there's a tab for researchers at the top of the menu. Great. Well, this has been great. And I want to just say thank you for taking the time to walk me through it, <laughs> reveal to me the ways in which science can inform policy. And um, uh, hopefully people will will reach out with, with their own expertise. Well, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. I appreciate the opportunity. Big thank you to Taylor Scott for taking the time to share her story and giving us a look at the Research to Policy collaboration. The website for that, again, is research2policy.org, research2policy.org, or check out the episode webpage for a link. This summer series on science communication is a special presentation of my podcast, Opinion Science, a show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. You can subscribe any old place where they have podcasts, and be sure to check out opinionsciencepodcast.com for links to things that came up in the episode, as well as past episodes of the show, transcripts, links, all that stuff. And once again, you can help spread the word about the podcast and this science communication series specifically by sharing it on social media, passing it along to your SciComm loving buddies, and leaving kind reviews of the podcast online. If you manage a newsletter for science communication resources or you're part of a science writing group, anything like that, th those would be great channels <laughs> to, to spread the word about this. Uh, I'm really excited about the summer series uh, and I would love for people who are interested in science writing science to policy, science communication, to find it. Okie doke. Thank you so much for listening. Happy American Independence Day. You know, do the things. Watch a parade, fire up the grill, look at some fireworks, and I'll see you back here next week for another form of strategic science communication. So it really is thinking about all the stuff that I know, all the, like, you know, kind of amalgamation of studies and findings and whatnot, thinking about the audience that I'm communicating with and what they're most motivated by and what they most need to hear, and then creating that link between their lived experience and what the data tell you to create an, a strategy, an outcome, an action that they can take so that it's always very tangible and behavior-based. Hi, my name is Dr. Evelyn Carter. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm the president of Paradigm, a diversity, equity, and inclusion company. <laughs>